Well, the fear of man is no small issue. The fear of man. I've had friends here in America whose non-Christian parents have threatened to disown them if they own Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine the internal turmoil if one lives to the praise of his parents, let's say. For one of my friends, the thought of claiming the Lord and therefore having relatives cut him off from the family and so cut off ties from him, it was just too much for him. And so even though he had gone to church for, you know, he'd gone to youth group for uh, quite some time, uh, even though he had prayed some sort of prayer, uh, yet at the end of the day, he refused to own Christ for himself. It reminds me of the passage in the Gospel of John where it says that many, many, quote, many of the Jewish leaders, uh, unquote, they heard of Jesus, they were convinced by Jesus, they even wanted to follow Jesus, but, quote, for fear of the Pharisees, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, it's a Jewish teacher in the synagogue, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. That is, that they actually believed in Jesus. Now, here's, here, here's what they feared. It is so that, still in quotation, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So they, they, they believed in Jesus, or so they thought, but they didn't claim Jesus. Why is that? Because they feared the Pharisees. They feared that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then listen to their heart motive. Quote, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's John chapter 14, verses 12 to 13. I mean, what an indictment to care more about the praise of man than the praise of God. To care more about the praise that comes from created beings than to care about the praise of the very creator. I mean, this is no small thing. Did you know that fear of man is what moved Pilate? Pilate, not the airplane pilot. Pilate in the New Testament to hand over Jesus to be crucified even though he personally found no guilt on Jesus. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, there's no guilt found on this man, but yet he hands him over to be crucified. Why did he do it? The Bible says because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. The reality is we probably all struggle with the fear of man to a certain degree. The good news is, as our passage reminds us this morning, that in no matter the situation, we can be confident Christians because of our Christ. No matter the situation, we can be confident Christians because of our Christ. And PK, can I ask you to grab me a cup of water? Thanks. Uh, I invite you to join me this morning as we turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. If you're using one of those black Bibles found in front of you, it can be found on page 1016. Again, the main point is in no matter the situation, we can be confident Christians, confident Christians because of our Christ. I'll give you a little bit of background to the, to the letter. The Christians that the Apostle Paul was writing to were certainly in a dangerous situation, right? In no matter the situation, we can be confident Christians. He's writing to Christians who are in a dangerous situation. It's the early 60s A.D., and persecution was spread out through all, basically, what is now modern Turkey, and that's who he's writing to. And they were suffering for their faith. Now, full-blown persecution wouldn't happen until 
the middle of the 60s, but underneath Nero, the emperor. But here, there still seems to be a widespread persecution against Christians for various reasons. If you look at chapter 1, verse 6, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 1, verse 6, you see there that they are grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 20, it appears, at least, it seems to be that uh, Christians were, were uh, probably experiencing beatings for their faith. And then we know throughout the letter that the Christians were being slandered and maligned. Right? So people are speaking bad about them and doing so publicly. So obviously there's a lot at stake in being labeled a Christian by the public. You know, just imagine their situation. As sufferings probably came along with being tagged and labeled as Christian. I mean, think about yourself. Your coworkers, your employers, your so-called friends, and your family. I mean, imagine the fear and the anxiety, the trouble that rises up in the soul, the anxiety, panic of the social situations there that can bring up as you are labeled a Christian and you're entering into the world. I mean, some of us here uh, and some of my friends that aren't here, you know, I know that they certainly have social anxiety, right, when it comes to human beings in general. I mean, just imagine then when, when the anxiety comes from being persecuted for the faith. That's what's going on here. It's a dangerous situation. Our passage today and much of First Peter assures us that the confidence even in the face of suffering, should you face suffering for the faith, is available to the Christian in the Lord. And this brings us to point number one. Point number one, if you're taking notes, confidence is available to the Christian. The main reason why, if you look at our passage in verses 13 to 17, the main reason why is because the Lord is on our side. The Lord is on our side. The first verse of our passage, look there, verse 13. It reads, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. Of course, this rhetorical question follows on the heels of what immediately came before, where Peter quotes from this psalm, Psalm chapter 34. And I'll go ahead and read that here. This is meant to encourage us. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is, chap- this is chapter 3 of First Peter. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 12 right there. That's the climax of the section that he's quoting. Uh, To those who have faith in the Lord, God gives his presence. He gives compassion. He gives his kindness. He gives deliverance. But to those who oppose him, the implication is that God's face is towards you even if you're here and you oppose him in righteous judgment, in holiness, in just wrath. It is against those who are opposed to Jesus Christ. Now, what should not be overlooked here is that his deliverance is personal. His face is towards those. His ears are open. His eyes are open towards to those who call upon him. And then his face, also personal, is against those who, who are opposed to him. This is personal here. In these verses, Christians are to see the loving, compassionate care of the Lord, right? He is for his people. Confidence is available to the Christian. The main reason why is because the Lord is on our side. So here the Christians are supposed to be encouraged by the fact that he is for his people and that he is against those who are against him. Now, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you might say, well, this sounds terribly unloving, you know, especially in this day and age. This sounds especially unloving. You Christians are saying that God only loves Christians and not anybody else. Well, first... Uh, God loves all of his creation. That's very clear in the Bible. It says there that he 
gives us the rain. So we recently had rain. We're going to have rain this weekend. God gives the rain to the wicked and the righteous. He loves everybody. In that sense, he sustains the whole entire world. And then Peter himself says that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, all should reach repentance. My friends, that's exactly it, right? Repentance is key. Repentance is key. I mean, what should a good and righteous king do if citizens in his kingdom uh, refuse to acknowledge his rule? If they reject his good and loving laws and then continually reject uh, his call for them to lay down their hostility and so be loved and forgiven by the king. I mean, that's how the Bible describes the situation of all man. God is our creator. We are his people designed to live in a right relationship with him. We were made, under, uh, made to live underneath his good rule according to his loving law, but instead we sinned against him, wanting our own law in ever to rule for our own selves. We earn for ourselves the king's righteous judgment, even judgment in hell, the Bible says. And those who continue in their sin and refuse to lay down their hostilities against the king, well, they will face judgment. But those who do, in fact, lay down their hostilities... The Lord forgives. He takes them into his family. He adopts them where they are given uh, the kingdom now, where they are forgiven. They're given all the heavenly blessings in Jesus Christ. They have an eternal inheritance that is eternal life stored up for them in the future. They receive all the blessings that come in Jesus. Forgiveness through the blood of Christ, right standing before a holy God, even though they are the ones who are sinners. They are declared righteous. They have a hope of final salvation when all will be made right as the king restores his order to his earth now again if you're visiting with us while the facts of the bible state that god is a righteous judge i'm guessing that to a certain degree your conscience likes that god is a righteous judge there's a sense in which many people want god to deal with sin right i mean you know let's take uh, you know most people generally speaking want god to deal righteously with the hitlers of the world most people in general want God to deal rightly, righteously towards the Pol Pots in the world, towards the rapists who do not repent in the world, towards the murderers who do not repent in the world. Right? We want God to deal righteously with the sins of those sinners. But the reality is, as Greg Gilbert says, we just don't want God to deal righteously with our own sins. Because if that happened then we too would be made out to be sinners. But I'm guessing there's something in you that is good and you recognize when a wrong is done, you actually want someone, a judge somewhere, a cop somewhere, to be righteous towards that wrongdoing. Friends, that is like a beacon of hope that points you back to the righteous character of God, who is the judge. That very God has made you and given you your very own conscience. The great news, the reason why God deals with sins by sending Christ to die on the cross was to save us from our sins, to save us from our unrighteousness. God gives sinners the chance to turn from their sins and believe on him. That's why God deals righteously with sins for those who repent and believe. It is so that the sins would be taken care of. And there we see God's grace and his love. So here, when we talk about God being against those who do evil, this is just God being all righteous, perfectly righteous and moving against those who oppose him 
because they oppose pure righteousness. That's really what's going on here. And we as Christians, you know, we're not saying that we are the righteous ones all because of the things that we do, the way we look, or somehow we're inherently better. No, we are righteous only by the grace of God. The grace that God gives to everybody in Jesus Christ is made available. The saving grace of God is made available to everyone who turns from their sins and believes on him. And that can be available. That is available for you, too, as Jesus Christ died publicly, was raised publicly, showed everyone that God's payment has been taken care of where we deserved just judgment. Christ dies for sinners who repent and believe. Now, regarding the Christian, you see how potentially hope filled this is for Christians who are suffering at the hands of those who persecuted them. Even in the midst of threats and insults, this was to bring them confidence, right? Confidence in the Lord as they wait for the Lord's return. So the return of Jesus is a constant theme in the book of First Peter. Look there again at 13. Now, okay, so now given God's face is towards those who love him and his face is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? That is zealous for God's kingdom. That is zealous for God's law. That is zealous for the Savior. Who is there to harm you? The answer to that rhetorical question is no one. No one is there to harm you if you are zealous for the kingdom and the kingdom's Christ. Now, some go on in terms of application here. Some go on and they want to apply this passage and they look at verse 13 and they say, look, if I am zealous for doing good, then no one is going to harm me. If I am zealous for doing good, then no one is going to harm me. That is actually not the right way to understand the passage. That would go against the thrust of the book of First Peter. So again, when it says, hey, if I just do good and live a Christian life, then therefore no one will hurt me. Or the way I know that I am living a good Christian life is because no one hurts me. That's not true. Up until now, you know, we just don't see Peter offering solutions for Christians to get out of suffering in this earthly world. You just don't see it here in Peter. We do, though, have him saying we have hope in God's final salvation in Christ at his return. We do have Peter saying, as you Christian endure suffering, you may even win your persecutors over. They're thinking about salvation. Peter does say that God rewards the Christians earthly suffering. And if these things aren't clear enough, Peter points to the crucified Savior as a model of what it looks like to do good. He endured suffering while doing good, while entrusting himself to God. He endured suffering. I mean, he died so to say that the way we know that we're living a good Christian life, the right Christian life, is because no one hurts us is not true and simply not biblical. Jesus was crucified, his blood was shed, and he was all righteous. The thrust of New Testament teaching on Christian suffering can be summarized in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that does not mean... That you will 100% be persecuted just means that the general tone of the Christian's life throughout Christian history has been one of suffering. As you just, if you turn on the news, this is what you read of Christians being wiped out. And by God's grace, he might, he seems to be preserving us for that, at least in this generation. But of course, as our point emphasizes, if we, or if and when persecution comes, we need not fear. Why is that? Because the Lord of creation is on our side. The Lord of creation is on our side. Now, who is there to harm us if we are zealous for doing his good? 
And this truth is throughout Scripture. So Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The psalm that I read earlier that started off the pastoral prayer, you know, dwelling in the shadow of the mighty. Well, if you go on to read that psalm, that psalm is about suffering. But yet in the midst of suffering, he still can dwell in the shadow of the almighty where he trusts in God, where God is his fortress. So this does not mean that you will not suffer. It does, however, mean that the Lord will ultimately deliver. Praise God for that. For David, for example. I mean, was he not stalked? by one who wanted to kill him was not a number of enemies various peoples against him wanting his death i mean that is suffering and yet the king's exclamation in psalm 118 verse 6 is the lord is on my side what can man do to me ultimately that's the point here ultimately if the lord is on my side what can man do to me Take Paul in the New Testament, for example, in Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there. If you're new to the Bible, if you turn left, slowly you will get to the book of Romans chapter 8. And this is just another example of what it looks like to have confidence in the Lord, even though the Christians face suffering. And many people have dubbed this the, the most encouraging passage in the Bible. And I'll go ahead and read that. Look there at chapter 8, verse 31. And we're going to read all the way to 39. And listen to the fact that they go through suffering, but yet they still have hope. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With the Lord of creation on our side, Paul's side, David's side, all of the church's side with the king of the kingdom on our side who is there to harm us if we are zealous for doing good so that's addressing a wrong application now to move on to a right application it's kind of easy it's right there in the text we just move on if you look there at verses 14 and 15 i'll go ahead and read that uh, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if you struggle, friends, with the fear of man, here is your solution. It's kind of an odd situation because 
Odd solution, because in our fear of men, in your fear of men, just think of when the last time you wanted to avoid somebody or avoid a situation. Right here, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about this is, this is your solution to fearing men. Avoid others. Avoid all who make you feel uncomfortable or manage the situation. Here, point, Peter points right back to your own heart. In your hearts, it says, honor Christ the Lord. There's a solution. See that? Don't fear them, but fear him. Don't fear them, but fear him. Honor him as holy. Honor the Lord as the one who is set apart. That's what holy means, set apart. One translation puts it like this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So you see what he's getting at there? If you fear man, he wants to make sure that Christ Jesus is in fact the Lord over your own hearts. That's what it means to make Christ holy, Christ the Lord holy in your hearts. He wants to make sure that Christ is really Lord of your heart. So when Christ is Lord in your hearts, it's, it's then that you go from seeing people and situations to be avoided to seeing people to be ministered to and situations in which to minister on behalf of the Lord. Just think about the situations that bring you anxiety and trouble. Right? Particularly think about fear of man, sharing the gospel here. Trouble specifically and related to sharing Jesus with other people. When your Lord is on the throne of your heart, those situations become God-ordained opportunities to represent your Lord. To bring God's divine wisdom to that particular situation to people who actually might be looking for it. Think about people, right? Think about people that you fear. When the Lord is on the throne of your heart, you come to see people, not as threats, but people that Jesus has also called to turn from their sin and believe on him. As opposed to just people to be pleased, people to be avoided, situations to to run from. Friends, if you fear men, know that there is confidence with the Lord who is on our side. We live in his kingdom. Think about it, right? Just think, we think about a king, there is a particular throne and he has his kingdom and there is no boundary of the world that draws off a part that is not part of his kingdom. The whole entire thing is his kingdom. And he knows that there are others who will go about life in his kingdom according to their own laws. You know, they're over here, they're over here, they're over there. They go about their own business, they carry on their own relationships, but give no honor or thanks to the true king. Friends, the Lord has ordained that you, Christian, would be his ambassador to represent his will and to hold out his gospel so that they, too, would know a little bit more about the about the king's love for sinners and rebels. Oscar and I were in the office talking about uh, the helpful Honda people one day here. We're going to an illustration, obviously. We were talking about the helpful Honda people and, you know, using them, you know, their, their mission by Honda. Let's just say Honda rules the world. Uh, maybe in the car industry they do. So Honda rules the world and, he, and Honda sends out the helpful Honda people to do good works and to bring glory to Honda. Friends, you realize that we are to be like the helpful heavenly people. It is our job to be helpful in the most meaningful way. Instead of washing people's puppies or helping to pay their bills, we point people to Christ who cleanses souls and pays off our eternal debt. Now think back to the helpful Honda people. 
Wouldn't it be so strange and bizarre if the helpful Honda people were so worried about all the people that they were sent out to help? They would be failures at their jobs. But they can go out with great joy. I mean, that would be a lot of fun in this earthly, to have an earthly career to go out and help other people, you know, washing their puppies, paying off their bills, giving people free cars, right? They know that their so-called help is going to help other people. Isn't it sad that sometimes I think we look at the helpful Honda people and they got more courage to help with the earthly stuff that's all going to die and burn. But when we have the news that lasts in eternity and secures souls for an eternity, we turn up to people as if our news is what condemns. And so we are afraid. We fear like we are the sick ones. That we should sometimes hide out in the corner, not open our mouths, and not represent the true king who is sent out with his true gospel to give the hope that secures souls into eternity. May it never be that Honda helpers are more bold with the help that they have to offer than Christians are with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only by honoring Christ the Lord in our hearts that we come to minister to those that the Lord himself has sent us to love. When you see that that king is good and his gospel is good, then we minister rightly. We honor Christ the Lord and we are empowered to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are gripped by the fear of man, perhaps you honor man too much and the Lord too little. There's a book if you want to continue massaging these truths in your heart in relation to the fear of man there's a book called when people are big and god is small overcoming peer pressure codependency and the fear of man when people are big and god is small that book will feed you with the glories of who jesus is who god is and so put people in the right perspective exalt jesus christ so that you honor him more and see people in their right perspective as people who are made in his image those who are his created people. So definitely read that. I encourage you guys to go ahead and look that up. When people are big and gone and small. Another application point. So we looked at honor God, honor the king. Don't fear man. Now we continue. Uh, another application point. We are to continue speaking about him. We are to continue speaking about him. And actually, this is one way that we can honor him is by speaking about him. That's what Peter says in verse 15, that we are to always be prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I don't know about you, but in the course of my friendship with my non-Christian friends, they have no doubt mocked me for my faith. But at times, they have been curious about my faith and actions. At times, they have been curious about my faith and actions. And so they have asked me, so, you know, in sort of mocking, in a mocking way, but also still very serious. So why don't you choose to have sex with your girlfriend? Why don't you want to get drunk again when we used to do that regularly? Who exactly is this Jesus? I mean, friends, in those moments when they're asking you those questions, even in mockery, even in mockery, the door is flung wide open to give a defense of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I remember one time me and a bunch of others went to go play pool, you know, billiards, and, uh, and we were Christians. And the next table over, there were, there were these two drunk guys who were also playing pool. And they kept on asking us if we wanted to play, if we wanted to play. And, uh, you know, I was happy to play my game. But one of my friends from Ireland, he decided to go ahead and play with them. He's a Christian, wanted to be a pastor. So he thought, hey, this would be a good opportunity to evangelize. 
And it turns out that one of the guys, you know, he's, him and his friend were clearly drunk, but one of the guys actually asked him after my friend Reuben uh, spoke to him about how he's a Christian and how there's hope in Jesus. He actually, the, the drunk guy pulled Reuben aside and said, hey, I don't want to tell my friend this because he would, he would make fun of me endlessly. But can you tell me more about Jesus? That's a non-Christian drunkard who's in the pool hall doing what he does, but still looking for a hope, a solid hope. And here Peter says, look, in all of these moments, the non-Christians will be looking for, even if they don't realize it, looking for the hope that they have, a hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So how is it that we are be prepared? God says that we ought always be prepared to make a defense. Always prepared. Now, the Greek word for defense could also be translated an apologetic. Be ready to make an apology, not say sorry. An apologetic is a reason, a defense of something. Now, I know some of you guys, you might associate Christian apologetics with something like studying uh, the existence of God, you know, reasons or proofs for the existence of God. Uh, or the creation of the world, or proofs for the deity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, while those things are helpful, and I encourage you thoroughly to study those things, I don't think that's what's, that, what, that is what Peter is talking about primarily. He's not talking about laying out proofs for the existence of God. And we know that because of the nature of the hope that we are to defend. The nature of the hope that we are to defend. According to chapter 1, it's the living and abiding hope that Christians have in the resurrected Savior. Now, in this day and age where reason is declared as king, ought we to be prepared to talk about the actual resurrection of Jesus? Yes. But I know folks who say, I believe in the resurrection. I just don't care about it. I don't care about Jesus. Well, facts alone are not going to bring someone to bow the knee to Jesus and to have forgiveness in him. First and foremost, primarily here, the hope that is associated with Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, crucifixion on behalf of sins, resurrection to show that payment was made, and the hope that comes with it, the grace that comes now into eternity, that's the hope here. That's the defense. I mean, you can imagine, right? If, I'm, if I am over you and I'm persecuting you, and I see that you are curious to me, you know, you're, you're funny because you're still doing good towards me, and then I say, well, why, what in the world are you guys doing? Why would you continue doing this? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. That's what's going on here. So uh, we are to always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us. And implied in that is anyone, even if they aren't asking us, right? He's writing to suffering Christians. Uh, but friends, do you know how to present the gospel of Jesus Christ? If someone were to ask you, so what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would you say? Friends, if we can't say what the gospel is in, let's just say, 60 seconds or less, uh, then I don't understand how we might be ready always to offer the hope that we have in Jesus. Right. If explaining the gospel takes, you know, 20 minutes, uh, then let me encourage you to grab one of these tracks called Two Ways to Live, the choice that we all face and study the gospel as summarized by uh, this Australian group as they published two ways to live and there's just like six really helpful diagrams that i literally have sat down with someone and drawn on the napkin to explain them the gospel of jesus christ it is so incredibly helpful and uh it basically summarizes uh the fact that god is a loving ruler of the world he made the world he made us rulers of the world underneath him right and you got a little picture right you got a crown a man on top of a world 
And then the next, the next uh, picture here is we all reject the ruler. That's sin. We all reject God by trying to run life our own way without him. But we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. Now, that's pretty obvious. You turn on the news, you look around, you look at yourself. We're all sinners, right? Uh, the question then is, what will God do about this rebellion? Well, number three, the third picture is God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 it has all these verses there. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Well, that's all bad news, right? That's all bad news. Uh, picture number four, because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus always lived underneath God's rule. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. So in Christ, he offers forgiveness. Number five, God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. Jesus conquered death and now gives new life and will return to judge. And then number six, the two ways to live. We can live our way. We can reject the ruler that is God. We can try to run our own life our own way. The result is being condemned by God, facing death and judgment. Or we could live God's new way. Submit to Jesus as our ruler. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. The result is be forgiven by God, reconciled to God, and given eternal life. This is two ways to live. Incredibly useful. So if you are visiting with us and you are not a Christian, I'm happy to give one to you. If you are a Christian and you want to know more about how to summarize the gospel according to these six cells and even know how to draw it uh, to your non-Christian friends, I got 12 of these. I got, I think, more in the office. And those of you who speak Spanish, I got uh, 12 of these too. You can see me at the door. I'll be happy to give those to you. Give them to your non-Christian friends. Uh, that's just one very practical way to always be prepared to make a defense. Who is this Jesus? What is this grace? And there we're supposed to be prepared. But moving on here, Peter encourages readers to be concerned with not only knowing how to give the gospel, but the way in which we share it, the way in which we share it. He says there, look in verse 15, yet do it gently with respect, having a good conscience. You can imagine how important this would have been for folks who are treated poorly. I mean, just think back to when you were treated poorly. Isn't the gut instinct, the sinful instinct to respond in kind, to respond in anger, to respond perhaps with our own, set, our own persecution? Uh, but here they're supposed to represent Jesus even in the way they share the gospel of Jesus, with the gentleness of Jesus, with fear towards God first and foremost and respect towards other people. And why is that? Verse 16, look there. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The goal isn't to see non-Christians put to shame. The goal is to see holiness vindicated. That's what he's getting at. The goal is to see God's character vindicated. The reputation of Christ. Our very own reputation. That it would be protected at the return of Jesus Christ. And at that time, evildoers, yes, will be put to shame. It says that they will be proven wrong. Well, as ambassadors of the king, we are all dispatched all over God's world. Honda doesn't rule the world. It is God, the Lord, who rules the world. He sends us out as his ambassadors, ambassadors to preach the gospel to his very created people that they might turn back to the king. With the Lord on our side, right, there is confidence. We are sent out in his authority with his good news, and he is with us. And if we honor him as Lord... Any crippling fear of man can be dispelled. So summary of point number one, there is confidence in Christ because the Lord is on our side. 
Of course, if you notice, Christian confidence has everything to do with the Lord. Who He is and the fact that He is with us. Confidence also comes because of what Christ has accomplished. This is point number two. Christians can be confident because of what, of what Christ has done. This is in verses 18 to 22. I'll go ahead and read that section there. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There is a whole lot there in that text. In these verses, Peter points suffering Christians, first and foremost, to their suffering Christ. It's similar to chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, where he encouraged those who were suffering unjustly to look at the unjust suffering of Jesus and therefore have courage in the face of unjust suffering. But in our passage, we are encouraged to look to Christ who reconciles and Christ who reigns. Christ who reconciles, Christ who reigns. First, Christ reconciles us to God. I mean, what a great reminder to these folks who are fearing man, maybe wanting reconciliation with everybody around them, even those who persecuted them. Right? Man fears. They want to get in good with fellow men. But here, Peter reminds us, and we are reminded that the reconciliation that we need most with the one who is worthy of all honor, that reconciliation has already been taken care of. Once again, this is a bit of learning, learning about how to honor the Lord. Uh, Peter zeroes in on this relationship that is our relationship with God the Father, with the Lord. And what Christ has done to reconcile us. If you look there again in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's a great summary of the gospel. Christ's Christ's death was for sins. This speaks about why he chose to die. Why he actually took on flesh. It was to die once and for all to take care of the sins of all who would repent and believe. Of why he chose, speaks of why he chose to die. And it also mentions that it was substitutionary. It, was the, it speaks of those he died for. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. God's expectation on people was that they live a righteous life. They rebelled. Here is Jesus, the righteous one, who has come to live on behalf of the unrighteous sinners. So it is the righteous for the unrighteous, those who repent and believe. And what was the purpose here? It brought sinners back to God. It speaks of what he achieved in his death. That is purpose. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, puts it this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Through his shed blood, the sins of sinners, the wrath that sinners deserved is wiped away. As Jesus absorbs the wrath and therefore God's face is positive it is joyful towards those who repent and believe so how does this help with your fear of man this helps us reorder our earthly relationships it helps us reorder our earthly relationships not every man is a king unto themselves so like the helpful honda people if you're so fearful about all those that you are designated to help 
uh, you might drop the will of Honda for the will of these individuals. Well, same with God. We've been sent out by God. If we're not confident in who God is, then we're going to drop his will in effort to do the will of all those that the true king has sent us to help. Fear of man will make you think that every man is a king unto himself. Thus, we bow the knee to every man. Again, this passage reminds us who the true Lord is and that reconciliation to God has been won through us or to us, for us, through Jesus Christ's blood. Now, when that is crystal clear in our minds, we go from fearing man to fearing the Lord and wanting others to do the same, even at the cost of our very own life. Not only does Christ reconcile us to the Lord, Christ achieves victory over evil. Christ achieves victory over evil. This is in 19 to 22. In these verses, Peter reminds the suffering Christians that with Christ there is victory. In the face of suffering, he says, with Christ there is victory. Now, the way he does it is first by showing us that Christ is victor. And then second, he gives us an Old Testament example of victory in God. So first... The resurrected Christ proclaimed his victory. There's victory in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says that Christ was put to death in the flesh. That is, he really died in the flesh. Right? But he didn't stay dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Now, something that this verse is talking about where Jesus Christ went after he died on the cross and before he was raised. So those, those few days right there. That's not what this passage is talking about. There's nothing in this passage for us to think that this is that this is that is what it's talking about. That was confusing. Um, so don't think about, you know, where is Jesus's disembodied spirit flying around in between his death and his resurrection? Paul uses the same flesh spirit categories in First Timothy three sixteen. 16. It says there he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. So the categories are he really died here on earth. But who raised them from the dead? It is the spirit, the agent of the spirit who raised them from the dead. So realm and then agent. If that helps you, realm and then agent. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, so again, Christ was put to death in the flesh and raised in the spirit. But what? Uh, but what? But it is what the resurrected Christ does that Peter draws our attention to. Let me repeat that again. But it is what the resurrected Christ does that Peter draws our attention to. It says there, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That's the verse that there's a whole lot of. So let me help to explain this, hopefully. Uh, there are a number of questions that come from this passage. The first question is, you know, who are these spirits and what does it mean for them to be in prison? Who are these spirits and what does it mean for, the, to be, for them to be in prison? The prison part seems pretty clear. It seems to be a place where evildoers go as they await final judgment. It could be, you know, hell or a special part of hell, not sure. Peter, in his other letter, in 2 Peter, uses similar language of disobedient angels being kept in chains, quote-unquote, chains and gloomy darkness. Revelation 20 describes God imprisoning Satan for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, it says Satan will be released, quote, from his prison, and there it goes on, it's, it's from his prison before the great judgment. Okay, so it seems that it's, it's a place that people go to await final judgment. But who are the spirits in prison that Jesus preaches to? 
Here, Bible scholars have different opinions. And on this point, let me underscore, on this point, it is okay to have different positions. Uh, this, not change, this does not change our confidence in the Word of God. Primary issues of who God is, it doesn't change that. It doesn't change anything about what Christ has accomplished on the cross. It doesn't change that. It doesn't change any doctrine of salvation. That's not affected. And in fact, the main point that Christ is victor is still upheld. Still upheld, regardless of who we're going to say that these spirits are. So, okay, who are these people? Uh, some people say that this was being spirits refer to wicked pe- the wicked people of Noah's day. Right? There's a reference to Noah. So they're the wicked people of Noah's day. The Bible describes people in Noah's day as wicked and corrupt. That's in Genesis 6. So it could be people. Um, it, others say that it was angels around Noah's generation that had somehow rebelled against God. So we know that angels certainly exist. Um, and in Genesis chapter 6, it speaks about angels dwelling among people. Uh, in my opinion, it does seem to be that these, I think, uh, might be some sort of disobedient angels that Jesus is proclaiming to. Second Peter seems to back up the notion that Christ preached to disobedient angels. The reason why, Second Peter 2 verse 3 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... And then get this, it says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Do you see how those two things go hand in hand? In Peter's mind, you have these angels who are casting gloomy darkness and then Noah. And that's Peter himself writing the second Peter. Uh, regardless, once again, the point is the same. They are evildoers, whether they be of the spiritual realm or of uh, humans. Uh, and they are disobedient to God. That's the main point. Regarding Christ and the crucifixion, after being crucified by evil men who were enslaved by the evil one, the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead and Christ then proclaimed victory over their realm. That's the main point here. Christ, after he was raised by God, by the Spirit, he goes and proclaims victory over the evil realm after his resurrection. That's what he's preaching. So he's not preaching like get out of hell card. He's not saying that those who are in hell can transfer over to heaven. That would be to go against other portions of Scripture. Uh, Here he's preaching his very own victory. And you see, it seems to be that's where Peter's going to in verse 22. Look there. It talks about Jesus after his resurrection, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God. Now, he could stop there stating his authority. That's a position of authority, but he makes it specific. Referring to heavenly orders or these these angels with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's authority language. He sits over, he reigns over, he is victor over the spiritual realm and evildoers as his face is against those who do evil. That's what victory looks like. It's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's just ways of referring to the order of spiritual beings. The point is clear. The Lord, our Lord, is victorious over evil. That's the main point. And with the Lord, once again, we have victory. What a hope securing truth to these scattered and persecuted Christians suffering at the hands of wicked people. 
To encourage these Christians, Peter draws from the testimony of Noah. Next in verse 20, he draws from the testimony of Noah. He says, eight persons were brought safely through water. The Lord delivered him out of the crooked and twisted generation. So keep in mind, right? he's writing to encourage the Christians. And so he reaches back to an Old Testament example of when God's followers had a victory in the Lord against evildoers. That's why Noah's brought up here. Eight persons were brought safely through water. The Lord delivered him out of a crooked and twisted generation. So the Christians here that, that Peter's writing to, right? They were suffering from evil, from evil people. This is supposed to encourage them as they suffer from those who reject God. You know what the Bible calls Noah? Peter says Noah was a herald, a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. It says that he persisted in offering a defense, so to speak, of the hope that he had in God as he heralded righteousness for a hundred years. God called Noah when he was 500 years old, believe it or not, 500 years old, the Bible says. And the flood didn't come until a hundred years later. What was he doing during that time other than building the ark? He was, we are meant to think, heralding righteousness. He persisted in offering a defense of the hope that he had in God, so to speak. What an encouragement. For these Christians to look at Noah, who persisted in preaching and persisted in righteous living. As Genesis 6 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Christians, we too are encouraged to trust in the Lord, to preach about the Lord, being ready to make a defense. We are to persevere in walking in the Lord's ways, knowing that with the Lord there is certain victory. And God's deliverance of Noah and his family was a symbol, a symbol, really, for the Christian's deliverance in Christ. Yes, did it take place in history? Absolutely. But it was to point us forward to something else that Peter highlights here. What was Noah escaping and being delivered on the boat on top of the water pointing to? What was it a symbol of? Well, after marshalling this example, look there in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, saves you. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if you are into analyzing film and literature here, uh, the words that Peter uses actually anti-type. Anti-type, that is a fulfillment of another thing. You have the type, the things that pointed to this other thing, and then you have the anti-type. Anti-type is the word that Peter uses here. And he's saying that baptism is the anti-type of the flood, of Noah's deliverance in the flood. I mean, that's pretty fascinating. Of course, he's not saying that getting dunked in water imparts saving grace to you. That's not what saves. He's not saying that we were saved by grace and works. That would go against everything Peter mentions in chapter 1 as he talks about election, that is grace from the beginning of the, from the foundation of the world, to grace presently as Jesus was manifested, died on the cross, to grace come in the future in final deliverance. Right? If we're saying that we're saved by works here, that would undercut everything that he's talking about. To Peter and other New Testament writers, baptism and becoming a Christian. So the word baptism and becoming a Christian uh, are so closely related to one another. The word baptism stood in the place of the whole. It stood in the place of the whole. Again, you literature English folks or uh, folks who like interesting words, a word that is used to describe this is called a synecdoche or a synecdoche. Um, you definitely don't have to write that one down. But that's what it's called when a word stands for the whole. Baptism stands for becoming a Christian. And we do this too. 
We might, use, we might speak about becoming a Christian in different ways, using different words. Speaking about conversion from the individual's perspective, when did you repent and believe? Speaking about conversion from the angle of the Spirit's work, we might say, so when were you born again? Speaking about conversion from the angle of the church, it was when were you baptized, as it is the church that baptizes, according to Matthew 28. All these things refer to what it means to become a Christian. So baptism stands in the place of the whole. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the deliverance of Noah, now saves you. Okay, so how does this save, or how does this correspond to Christians? Here I think it's helpful to think of the flood event in general. Think of the flood event in general as corresponding to, or, uh, as corresponding to uh, Christian baptism, and not just Noah on the boat. I'll repeat that again. Uh, I think it's helpful to think of the flood event in general as corresponding to Christian baptism and not just Noah on the boat. So, just as Noah and crew were in the minority, so Christians are in the minority. So they were in the minority, a scattered minority. Just as Noah and crew were, were in the minority, so Christians are in the minority. Just as Noah was known for righteousness and for preaching the righteousness of God, So Christians are to be known for righteousness and preaching the righteousness of God. Just as Noah and crew received safe passage amidst judgment, so Christians find safe passage in the gospel as represented in the waters of baptism that speak actually of a coming judgment. Just as Noah found deliverance and victory with the Lord, so Christians do as well. And all of this really is summarized in baptism, isn't it? When the Christian confesses Christ, when the person confesses Christ, they are united to Jesus Christ. And as Romans 6 says, as Jesus Christ died to sin, so we as Christians die to sin. And then as Christ was raised from the dead, so we as Christians are raised to new life. And all of that deliverance is made clear in the visible picture of baptism. That's what the Lord has done to reconcile us to our very own Lord. Praise God, he's not only reconciled us to the Lord where we can now honor him, but he has also proclaimed victory over the evil realm. Friends, the Lord is on our side and therefore we can have confidence. Now, concluding application here. It is because of Christ's triumph over sin and Satan and the powers of evil, it's that that allow us to persevere in meekness, in gentleness, and respect. Some people might look at this victory and think that victory means that all we need to do is strap on our gats and our clubs and go out and take victory with violence. That actually, once again, goes against everything that Peter's talking about. Friends, note that the violence that occurred on the cross as God uh, sent his son to die on the cross for sins, as Christ made mockery of Satan, as God waged war with Satan, that violence does not mean that we as Christians can pursue violence. That violence means that it is finished and we then can pursue the ways of Jesus. We have his meekness. We have his gentleness and his respect. And even when he comes to destroy Satan, finally, we trust in his sovereign power while entrusting our very own souls to him who judges justly. His victory, and therefore the Christian's victory in Jesus, allows us to walk in his very same footsteps. Look over to 1 Peter 2, verse 22. 
Actually, let's look at 21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Given that we can trust in the victory that is found in Jesus, let us then never suffer for doing wrong, but let us suffer for doing good, if that should be the Lord's will. No matter the situation, we can be confident Christians because of our Christ. The Lord is on our side. Therefore, as the pastor says, we should fear him, we should honor him, and we should fear him, not man. We should also continue speaking about him. We ought not fear man because Christ has reconciled us to God, mending the most important relationship we could ever have. And he has, in fact, won victory over evil. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that you are our compassionate God. Your eyes are on the righteous. Your ears are open to their prayer. We thank you, Lord, that in your word it even speaks about how you are like a mother hen who gathers your chicks to your bosom so that they might find peace and comfort. Lord, we pray that you would help us honor you rightly. We pray that you would help us know the security we have in the cross of Jesus Christ and know that whatever we face, and no matter the situation, Lord, we could have confidence in the fact that you have already defeated Satan's sin and death. You already have proclaimed your victory to those who oppose the Lord. Father, we pray that we too would know that there is victory with Christ on our side. And Lord, we pray too that we would lay down the weapons of our former world and take up the beautiful attributes, the beautiful characteristics, characteristics of Christ our Savior, your gentleness, your love, your desire for peace, your desire that sinners would be reconciled to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would embolden us to preach your good news to those who ask us and even to those who don't. In your name we pray. Amen.